Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. More info is out about the FBI search of former President Trump's Florida home. We'll tell you what we now know and what the judge says about releasing the affidavit. A federal judge in Florida is allowing critical race theory to be taught in private companies. That's after Governor DeSantis tried prohibiting it. A controversial ad by New Jersey's largest teacher union. It appears to target parents who speak out against the state's new sex ed curriculum. A disturbing new development in the fentanyl crisis. Officials are warning it could be an effort to cause children to become addicted. An expert shares his view on what can be done to protect this vulnerable group. More documents were made public yesterday relating to the FBI's search of former President Trump's home. The judge also signaled he plans to release parts of the affidavit used to get the search warrant. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. A judge says he plans to unseal parts of the affidavit used to justify the search of former President Donald Trump's home. He's giving the Justice Department until next Thursday to suggest redactions. At Thursday's hearing, the DOJ argued that the affidavit should not be made public, citing concerns about deterring witnesses and endangering FBI agents. On the other side, many media organizations want more information and are pressing the judge to unveil as much as possible. The core of public access, and remember this is not a right of media access, it is a right of public access, and the core of that right is the ability to monitor the functioning of the government. Do we have Republican Mike Turner, who is a ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, questioned Wednesday whether the DOJ abused its power with the raid. What was the basis of that that he said had to be the option to choose this as opposed to going to the court and saying, I have a subpoena, judge, order the former president to deliver these documents to us. And of course, he would be at that point subject to contempt of court. And they didn't do any of that. Here's what we know now based on what was made public for the first time Thursday. One document shows it was an FBI special agent who authored the request for the search warrant. It also shows that an FBI special agent authored the affidavit. Another unsealed document shows the DOJ was worried about the destruction of evidence. Last week, former Trump official Cash Patel said on his Epic TV show that while Trump was still in office, he ordered the declassification of everything related to Russiagate and the Clinton email investigation. Patel said those documents were, for some reason, sent to the National Archives and never disclosed to the public. He argued that only the Constitution and constitutional amendments govern presidents, so the document statute cited by the DOJ shouldn't apply. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A federal judge is temporarily blocking part of Florida's so-called Stop Woke Act. The measure was put in place to prohibit the teaching of critical race theory in schools and companies. A federal judge of the Northern District of Florida on Thursday decided that Florida can't prohibit companies from teaching critical race theory, or CRT. CRT teaches that race is a social construct used to exploit people of color. The so-called Stop Woke Act would have prohibited teaching CRT in companies. It went into effect in Florida on July 1st after Governor Ron DeSantis signed the measure. Even before the law went into effect, several lawsuits were filed trying to overturn it. Now the judge has granted a preliminary injunction to suspend enforcement of part of the law. The judge says that it goes against the First Amendment. He writes, Normally the First Amendment bars the state from burdening speech, while private actors may burden speech freely. 
But in Florida, the First Amendment apparently bars private actors from burdening speech while the state may burden speech freely. Judge Mark Walker was appointed by Obama during his presidency. He also writes, If Florida truly believes we live in a post-racial society, then let it make its case. But it cannot win the argument by muzzling its opponents. The lawsuit says that plaintiffs agree with the view that discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and sexual orientation is systematically embedded in American society. When DeSantis signed the bill in April, he said no one should be instructed to feel as if they are not equal or shamed because of their race. In Florida, we will not let the far-left woke agenda take over our schools and workplaces. Walker's ruling does not address the part of the law that applies to Florida schools. And heading north to New Jersey, the largest teachers union there is facing backlash for a new ad. It appears to label parents who speak out at school board meetings as extremists. Here are the details. The New Jersey Education Association posted this ad on YouTube on August 15th titled Same Thing. The group is New Jersey's largest teachers union with 200,000 members. We don't agree on everything in New Jersey, but we all agree that our kids deserve a world-class education. So when extremists start attacking our schools, that's not who we are. People who only want to fight to score political points should take that somewhere else. New Jersey is set to begin a controversial new sex education standard this fall. It would require public schools to incorporate LGBTQ-themed content into their K-5 curricula. It expects students to define terms such as sex assigned at birth, gender identity, cisgender, and transgender by the end of fifth grade. The ad shows photos of parents protesting at school board meetings with two news headlines. One titled, Some New Jersey Schools Under Siege, and the other called, Don't Say Gay Bill Introduced by New Jersey State Senator. One of the photos was taken in August 2021 at a Nevada school board meeting. Parents there protested against the school district's COVID-19 mask mandate. Another photo depicts a man yelling during a May 2021 meeting in Georgia after the school board rescinded a resolution against the teaching of critical race theory. Republican lawmakers criticized the ad, saying the union is out of touch with parents' concerns. The New Jersey Republican Party wrote, If protecting our children from New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's insane sex ed standards is extreme, then we wear this as a badge of honor. The ad by NJEA has gained over 90,000 views on YouTube, and the comments section is turned off. And now to a gruesome saga of terrorist torture. A member of an Islamic State cell known as the Beatles could be sentenced to life in prison in a U.S. federal court. He was found guilty in a plot that led to the beheadings of U.S. journalists and aid workers. 33-year-old El-Shafi El-Sheikh was found guilty of the charges by a federal jury in April after a six-week trial and hours of deliberations. The jury concluded that he was part of an Islamic State cell nicknamed the Beatles for their British accents. The cell beheaded American hostages in Iraq and Syria. Al-Sheikh was born in Sudan and raised in London. He was accused of conspiring to kill four American hostages. Two journalists and one aid worker were beheaded on video. The fourth hostage was raped repeatedly by the group's leader at the time and then killed. El-Sheikh's charges carried a potential death sentence, but U.S. prosecutors told British officials they will not seek the death penalty. 
And a lighter note up ahead on NTD News, a 100-year-old mural is discovered behind a wall in a Vermont building that was once a synagogue. Now the rare piece of art has been moved and restored. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. We have updates for you on fentanyl abuse across the U.S. The crisis is hitting Alaska with over 250 overdose deaths last year and a disturbing new development in the type of pills seized at the border. Our next guest's law enforcement career spanned over 28 years. He breaks this down for us. Joining us now to discuss the fentanyl crisis is Derek Maltz, who is a former DEA special agent in charge. Derek, thank you for discussing this pressing issue with us. Thank you for having me. Very important topic. What can you tell us about the 15,000 fentanyl pills that were seized at a port of entry in Arizona that look like candy? Could this be a new trend targeting kids like authorities are warning? Absolutely, it's a new trend. It's the Mexican cartels taking total advantage of the wide open border and the vulnerabilities of our children all over this country. They have access to social media. They could buy these pills instantly. And it's a very deceptive, very strategic, very calculating marketing plan to actually build up a entire new customer base. Because they know that the more kids they get addicted to this fentanyl, the more money they're going to make. Because it's all about the money. And, and this is nothing new. We've seen them do this over the years with heroin and other types of synthetic drugs. The criminals are going to take advantage any way they can to maximize the profits. And we've watched this happen over the years when synthetic drugs were hitting the country like 2010 with K2 and Spice. They were put in in bags, marked Scooby-Doo snacks and other things like King Kong. It was all to attract the young customers. What can these kids do to protect themselves? Are there any new programs that we can do, like a new D.A.R.E. campaign or something? Well, the parents have to get way more involved. The parents have to get educated. The problem we're having now is that the United States government in the White House, they're not talking about this national crisis. We're losing about 300 Americans a day, and we don't have any public service awareness campaigns. We don't have an aggressive social media campaign. The problem is the young kids today, they're not really watching mainstream media. They're not watching cable news. They're all on the social media apps. So we have to get role models, influences, professional athletes, celebrities to start putting out the warnings. The kids are just not paying attention and the parents are not educating them because the parents don't know. I don't want to pick on the parents, but many parents that I work with around the country, they're finding their kids dead in their bedrooms as young as 13 years old. And what, they're, what I'm finding out is they never even heard of fentanyl. So it's, it's, a, it's a total lack of education on the current drug crisis. By the way, we don't have overdoses right now. We have mass poisonings in our country. This is just terrible. And you mentioned the youth. What about the unintended victims of fentanyl abuse? For example, the couple in Oklahoma was charged with second-degree murder after their six-year-old died from fentanyl overdose. Well, look, that is very tragic, but that's happening all over the country. I track that stuff on a daily basis. We had in August a two-year-old in Louisiana dead, July, a two-year-old, uh, June, a 15-month-old, the babysitter in Georgia, 59-year-old drug addict is doing the babysitting. When the parents got home, the baby's dead. 
This 12-year-old that died in New Mexico, I could go on all day. The kids are dying and they're not even using the drugs. They're coming across the drugs because the, the, the parents or the uncles or the aunts or the babysitters, they're the ones. Now, I just read a story in Ohio. The mother was just sentenced to 19 years in prison recently, like within the last week or two, because the one-year-old died earlier this year. So she was convicted and she's going to spend 19 years in prison. So it's devastating for not only, you know, losing a one-year-old, of course, but the family has to deal with this. The extended that is just family. terrible. Yeah. So just it's, terrible. it's all over. And thank you for following this so closely. Derek Maltz, former DEA special agent in charge. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, sir. In April, the Biden administration rolled out a strategy to control drugs. One of its goals is to reduce the supply of fentanyl. And in other news, two small planes collided in Northern California while trying to land at a local airport. At least two of the three occupants were killed. The collision happened shortly before 3 p.m. yesterday at Watsonville Municipal Airport, about 100 miles south of San Francisco. Two people were aboard a twin-engine Cessna, and only the pilot was aboard a single-engine Cessna during the crash. Aerial footage showed the wreckage of one of the small planes in a grassy field by the airport, as well as damage to a small building at the site. Authorities are still investigating the crash. Officials report multiple fatalities, and it's not immediately clear whether anyone survived, though no one on the ground was injured. The Federal Aviation Administration says the pilots were on their final approaches to the airport. Health officials say a child likely died from a rare infection caused by a brain-eating amoeba after swimming. Health officials believe the child came into contact with the amoeba on Sunday while swimming in the Elkhorn River just west of Omaha, Nebraska. But this isn't the first time this tragedy hit the Midwest this summer. Last month, a Missouri resident died of the same infection likely caused by the amoeba at a lake in southwestern Iowa. Officials closed the lake's beach as a precaution for nearly three weeks. People are usually infected when water containing the amoeba enters the body through the nose while swimming in lakes and rivers. Other sources included tainted tap water. Symptoms include fever, headache, nausea, or vomiting. Those symptoms can progress to a stiff neck, loss of balance, hallucinations, and seizures. The CDC says infections are rare, but that those infections are overwhelmingly fatal. Here's a tech announcement for you. If you have an Apple device, you probably need to make sure it's updated. The tech giant has found operating system vulnerabilities. The company says hackers have the ability to take control of a device's operating system and potentially infiltrate the device. Affected products include iPhones dating back to the 6S model, multiple iPad models, and the 7th generation iPod Touch. The vulnerability also extends to Mac computers running Monterey OS and Apple's Safari browser on its Big Sur and Catalina operating systems. The U.S. government's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is also urging users to update their devices as soon as possible. And moving from tech to old-fashioned handicraft, a mural that was painted in a Vermont synagogue more than 100 years ago was hidden behind a wall for years. Now the rare piece of art has been moved and restored. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Ben Zion Black painted the large colorful triptych in 1910. The work features the Ten Commandments with a lion on both sides, the sun beaming down, and columns and curtains at the borders. Now it's known as the Lost Mural. 
Experts say it's a rare representation of the kind of art from wooden synagogues in Europe that were largely destroyed during the Holocaust. The Nazis destroyed the synagogues across East, Eastern Europe, and we had so many devastating losses as a Jewish community. So to be able to see this whole restored is also about how we are feeling whole and restored. Black decorated the inside of the synagogue in 1910 in a Jewish neighborhood in Burlington, known as Little Jerusalem. The estimates are that there were stone synagogues, there were brick synagogues, there were also over 700 wooden synagogues in Lithuania, of which it's estimated that 500 had, wood, had murals like this. And there's one that survives in Lithuania now. We have the other one here, which is an incredible. When the building was being turned into apartments in 1986, the owner installed a wall in front of the mural. More than 20 years later, the wall board was cut away. The work was then moved to the Ojavi Zadek Synagogue. In its new home, conservators restored damaged sections of paint and cleaned the entire mural, revealing its original vibrant color and detail. It was largely supported by a, 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 more than a third of individual donations, about a third of business donations, and another third of foundations. So this is not just a foundation-led project. Yeah. This is really an incredible piece of work, a monumental effort by many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of donors. About $1 million was raised for the project. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The remains of a World War II veteran who died in combat nearly 80 years ago have been identified. The remains are from U.S. Army Air Forces Sergeant Elvin Phillips, who died in the summer of 1943 during Operation Tidal Wave. The 23-year-old was a gunner on a B-24 Liberator aircraft. He crashed after enemy fire north of Bucharest, Romania. Phillips' remains couldn't be identified at the time. He was buried as unknown in a military cemetery in Romania. In 2017, officials began exhuming burials believed to be associated with unaccounted for airmen from Operation Tidal Wave. The remains were sent to an Air Force base in Nebraska for examination. Scientists used modern forensics, including DNA analysis, to make the identification. Phillips is set to be reburied in Bluffdale, Utah. Parts of California's Death Valley National Park will reopen this weekend, nearly two weeks after record-setting flash flooding hit the area. The National Park Service says some of the most popular sites will open to the public Saturday. Those include the Furnace Creek Visitor Center, Badwater Basin, Zabriskie Point, and the Mesquite Sand Dunes. The service cautioned that several roads will be closed and said visitors should plan ahead and not rely on GPS. Officials urged drivers to exercise extreme caution, watching out for hazards including loose gravel and missing shoulders. With the Labor Day weekend approaching, major airlines are being told to start improving. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg wrote a letter blasting carriers for the number of disrupted or grounded flights over the past few months, calling it, quote, unacceptable. According to FlightAware, more than 40,000 flights have been canceled since June. Buttigieg says the Department of Transportation is going to publish an online dashboard where travelers can quickly and easily get all the relevant info they need for their flights, including cancellations and delays. The Federal Aviation Administration says some of the flight problems have been caused by staffing problems at air traffic control facilities. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. 
And still to come, Canada is looking into a mine purchased by the Chinese regime on Canadian soil. That's amid renewed focus on national security concerns. And flooding in western China kills at least 17 people. Footage shows mudslides and damaged houses. The country is facing extreme weather patterns. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. Canada is eyeing a purchase that Beijing made several years ago. It's a matter of special strategic importance, and it involves national security. Canada is now looking to protect its own resources better. Here's what's happening. Canadian media just disclosed a major purchase. Three years ago, Beijing quietly bought an important mine. It's called Tanko Mine, located in Manitoba, Canada. A mining giant of the same name, Tanko, is one of the few companies in the world that supplies cesium, a critical mineral and the key to producing atomic clocks and radiation detectors. Tanko has also produced lithium, a battery metal needed to make electric cars. Tanko was previously owned by a U.S. chemical company. Still, Canadian government had the power to block the acquisition citing national security, but Ottawa didn't do it. So China's state-owned Sinomine company became the new owner of the Tanko mine. Earlier this year, the mine started producing lithium to feed China's electric car industry. Sinomine plans to expand production over the coming years. Even though Ottawa has vowed to protect Canada's strategic resources from hostile foreign power acquisition, there are few mechanisms in place to stop that from happening. Earlier this year, Chinese multinational mining company Zijin acquired Canada's Neo-Lithium Corporation. Responding to questions about the deal, the Canadian Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry said that there was enough information to determine that the deal was not a national security threat. Now we look to a debate between three world powers over a Chinese surveillance ship. Some fear the vessel could collect military intel. And today's Tiffany Meyer with China in Focus has more. A Chinese surveillance ship is striking a nerve with India, a major U.S. defense partner in Asia. The ship docked at a strategic port in Sri Lanka on Tuesday. The port sits at a critical location. It's less than 10 miles away from one of the world's busiest shipping routes. It's also just miles away from one of the world's busiest oil transport routes. The path links two of the world's most important oil transit choke points, the Strait of Hormuz and the Strait of Malacca. And countries like China, Japan and South Korea depend on it for the bulk of their oil supplies. More than half of the world's oil is moved via fixed shipping routes like this one. And it's critical that these routes stay free and open, as the slightest disruption could drive up energy costs or delay oil supplies. On top of these, the port is also next to the southern tip of India. And the Chinese ship is capable of several functions. China's military uses the ship to monitor ballistic missile launches. The ship can also track satellites. China said the vessel is making a stop there to add fuel. But India remains worried. It says the Chinese ship is reportedly armed with advanced sensors, meaning the ship could spy on Indian defense facilities. What happens in our neighborhood 
any developments which have a bearing on our security obviously is of interest to us. Uh, I think uh, our spokesman had said some time ago that we obviously monitor any development uh, which has a bearing on our uh, interests uh, very, very carefully. India protested against the Chinese ship visit back in early August. U.S. officials also raised concerns. In response, Sri Lanka asked China to delay the ship's visit. But the vessel arrived at the port eventually. For Sri Lanka, the talk of war behind the ship visit is a symbol of its struggle between two giants, India and China. Both countries have been competing for influence over Sri Lanka. That's because, despite being a small nation, Sri Lanka sits on a crucial location. Complicating the situation is Sri Lanka's economic crisis. The country is saddled with debt, and China is one of its biggest lenders. Beijing has loaned Sri Lanka over $5 billion in the past decade. And now, Sri Lanka is hoping China will lend a hand. We hope and request China, our long-standing friend, to assist us in restructuring our debts and secure an IMF bailout as soon as possible and provide with some meaningful bridging finance. Sri Lanka also sought help from India. After Sri Lanka's economy fell into trouble, New Delhi gave it about $4 billion of financial assistance. India argues that Sri Lanka should not allow the Chinese ship to dock at a port this close to India. The nation also says it's closely monitoring the situation. And more from Sri Lanka. As anarchy gripped the capital city of Colombo in May, a couple gambled their family's life savings on a two-week, nearly 3,000-mile voyage with their two young sons. The decision ended in ruin. This Sri Lankan Navy vessel is looking for potential human smuggling boats. As more people look to escape the crisis-hit country, patrols along the coast have become more regular. They check this fishing boat. It's carrying nothing more than nets and fish. Leaving the country unofficially is illegal in Sri Lanka, but people have increasingly been willing to take that risk. Nearly a thousand people have been arrested this year to date, almost a record-breaking number. Minu Makala's husband is among them. In late May, they boarded a 30-foot boat under the cover of night with their two teenage sons. They paid their life savings of $1,400 for the one-way trip to Australia. We only had seawater to bathe with and use in the toilet. We couldn't use fresh water because then we could have run out of it. We suffered from hunger unlike ever before. Not even in our childhood did we suffer such hunger. Then we couldn't sleep because the boat was rocking so much. Their ship suffered a fuel problem, and eventually it was intercepted by the Australian Coast Guard. The family was sent back to Sri Lanka. Minu faces the charge of leaving the country from an unauthorized port. Her husband is accused of an additional charge of assisting in the logistics of the journey, and now awaits trial in prison. Hit hard by the pandemic and economic mismanagement, Sri Lanka is experiencing its worst economic crisis in decades. But Minu's family, with their passports cancelled for five years, won't be able to leave it anytime soon. Over to Taiwan, President Tsai Ing-wen addressed hundreds of the island's Navy service members. She thanked them for their service amid, quote, indescribable pressure from China. 
China claims self-ruled Taiwan as its own and has ramped up military exercises around the island this month in the wake of high-profile diplomatic visits from U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others. Tsai visited a naval base on Taiwan's northeastern coast. She told sailors that fulfilling their mission in the tight confines of a ship must have been difficult. In the face of China's harassment and provocation outside Taiwan's territorial waters, it is even more necessary to keep an eye on the dynamics of enemy ships all the time. In this period, everyone has shown firm and unwavering courage, responded calmly and showed solid and long-lasting results in the face of real threats, not only guarding maritime security, but also maintaining regional peace and prosperity. For such a performance, I must give the highest affirmation and respect. Tsai has repeatedly emphasized that Taiwan will neither provoke nor escalate conflict during the crisis, and the island's defense ministry has stressed its calm response to Chinese military activity. Although the scale of China's military drills has dropped off significantly from earlier in the month, Taiwan continues to report Chinese fighters and warships operating around the island. And in mainland China, at least 17 people were killed and 17 others missing after a flood in the country's west. That's according to Chinese state media. A sudden rainstorm triggered a landslide, which diverted a river and caused flash flooding in populated areas. State-run media CCTV shared an update online. It said only half of the 36 people missing were found by early afternoon. The official casualties may not reflect the total, given that the Chinese regime has a record of downplaying disaster events. The state broadcaster said the incident affected more than 6,000 people in six villages in Qinghai province. Emergency authorities described the flash flooding as a mountain torrent. Seven people died last weekend from a similar weather disaster in the southwestern Sichuan province. China is facing heavy rains and flooding in some parts of the country this summer and intense heat and drought in other regions. State media have described the prolonged heat and drought as the worst since record-keeping started 60 years ago. And coming up, in Russia, Starbucks locations are reopening under new ownership, and now it's called Stars Coffee. The venture is a collaboration between a local rapper and a restaurateur. And in Germany, heat pumps are in demand while the region faces a gas shortage, but supply chain difficulties are limiting sales. Find out more right here on NTD News. A restaurateur and rapper duo unveiled Stars Coffee on Thursday. The move reopens the chain of coffee shops in Russia, formerly owned by Starbucks. It's the latest major company rebranding after a months-long corporate exodus from the country, with mainly Western companies leaving. Starbucks may have left Russia back in May, but a new chain of coffee shops in the capital, Moscow, is hoping to replicate its success in more ways than one. Russian restaurateur Anton Pinsky and rapper Timati debuted new venture Stars Coffee on Thursday. Its logo and font might bear a striking familiarity to any coffee drinker walking down the street. But Timati insists it's all about perception. The American company gave its partner in Kuwait a right for a franchise in Russia, and this company was developing its coffee shops under this brand. When Starbucks decided to leave Russia, the company from Kuwait had lost interest in doing business without the brand. So they sold the right to their rental locations. 
We won the tender. There were a lot of participants, acquired it, and made our own brand. That is it. The conflict in Ukraine triggered a months-long exodus of Western corporations from Russia. But local entrepreneurs are quickly filling that void. In June, Russians celebrated a new era of fast food with a homegrown version of McDonald's. But these enterprises are not without their hard work. Timati says that because Starbucks had its own resource and production base, they've had to find new suppliers. Over 15 years, Starbucks grew its presence in Russia to 130 stores that employed a 2,000-strong staff. While it declined requests for comment, the Seattle-based company referred to an earlier statement that said it had made the decision to exit the Russian market and no longer had a brand presence there. And over in Germany, energy-efficient heat pumps are in high demand as the country looks to wean itself off Russian gas. But supply bottlenecks, labor shortages and surging energy costs are causing difficulties for the industry. In a way, Stiebel Eltron has never had it so good. The heating manufacturer's main factory is working 24 hours a day, making the energy-efficient heat pumps that Germany needs to wean itself off Russian gas. But it's also never had it so tough, with supply bottlenecks, labour shortages and surging energy costs making it impossible to meet nearly limitless demand. Kai Schiefelbein is the company's chief operating officer. On the one hand, it is Germany's absolute strength as an industrial location that we have skilled workers. On the other hand, we need more. Thousands of medium-sized family-owned companies like this one are the engine room of Germany's economy. They account for half its output and some 40 million jobs. Their ability to adapt will be the key test of whether Germany's prosperity, built on its manufacturing excellence, can survive. Heat pumps are reverse refrigerators that suck heat out of the environment to warm houses through the winter using a quarter of the energy of a gas boiler. They're in heavy demand as Germany prepares for a winter with less Russian gas. But like many other medium-sized family-owned companies, Stiebel Eltron is now struggling because of snarled-up global supply chains. We will produce around 80,000 heat pumps this year. That's decent growth. We're proud of that. Now we also have to be honest. It doesn't match what we could sell if we had unrestricted delivery capability. Supply chains already stretched by the health crisis have been further frayed by the war in Ukraine, while the cost of raw materials has also soared. Despite this, the surge in demand has been a bonanza for the company. It sold 50,000 heat pumps last year and expects to sell 80,000 this year. Still in Europe, sunken World War II warships are surfacing. That's because the summer drought is drying up the Danube River. The Danube's water level is at its lowest in almost a century. Now the hulks of German warships that sunk during World War II are visible in Serbia. The ships were among a fleet of hundreds of vessels that sunk when they retreated from the Black Sea in 1944 as Soviet forces advanced. The sunken warships still contain explosives. They disrupt river traffic when water levels are higher, but usually they're not visible. This year's drought has exposed more than 20. A local who wrote a book about the ships says the Germans left an economic disaster behind. Removing the hulks, ammunition and explosives would cost an estimated $30 million. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, the UK faces an energy crisis, but it's deja vu from a similar crisis in the 1970s. What decisions did they make back then, and how can that guide today's policymakers? Welcome back. Britain today faces double-digit inflation driven by soaring energy costs. It's expected to financially cripple the most vulnerable households, and it's very similar to a crisis 50 years ago. How did the government in 1973 cope back then, and what lessons can be learned? Soaring energy prices, a cost-of-living crisis, and rising work unrest. History looks like it is repeating itself in Britain as the country grapples with an economic crisis that bears similarities to that of the 1970s. So how did Britain handle the crisis back then? Energy rationing marked then-Prime Minister Edward Heath's tenure. The organization of Arab petroleum exporting countries had declared an oil embargo, forcing Heath's government to consider some extreme proposals. This footage from December 1973 shows customers being led by workers with gas lamps in darkened stores on London's main shopping street. Britain today is unlikely to face such prolonged blackouts. But experts say anything that threatens a world of contactless payments and computerized tills will add to anxiety over the country's ability to withstand social and economic shocks. Consumer price inflation peaked in 1975 at 24.5%. And it was not until the 1990s that it fell sustainably into low single digits. Like 50 years ago, Britain today faces double-digit inflation. The Bank of England expects to see inflation exceeding 13% this October, which would be the highest rate in 42 years. Political analyst Peter Kellner was a Sunday Times journalist in the 1970s. There is potentially a double parallel between Britain today and Britain in 1973 thereabouts, in that the inflation which took off in Britain in 1973 and stayed high for the rest of the decade, was um, the first um, impulse towards inflation was a combination of domestic forces. Historian Alwyn Turner agrees there are similarities, but also big differences such as the background of top politicians. I think our problem now is a lack of knowledge. We don't have anybody around in politics who can remember what it was like with inflation. Certainly not in office, and indeed many of them not at all, because you know this is this is quite a young generation of politicians we have now. So I think there's uh, there's a danger in possibly in the other direction. They, 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 the people are slightly lost by it. Heath, like Johnson today, had aspirations to shift Britain's economy into a higher gear. In 1972, his government announced a budget to double the rate of economic growth, which stoked inflation. Today's leadership frontrunner, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, has been accused by rival candidate Rishi Sunak of making a similar mistake with her vow to slash taxes. In the end, Heath paid the price for his handling of the economy and worker relations. 
He lost to the opposition Labour Party in a 1974 snap election. After the tragic discovery of two children's remains in a New Zealand storage locker last week, local police are now investigating their suspected murder. Police in Auckland launched their homicide inquiry after the remains were found in suitcases. A family was going through the contents of a storage locker they had purchased before looking at it. Police said Thursday the two children were between 5 and 10 years old and had been deceased for some time. They noted that the suitcases had been in storage for some time as well. Though the children have yet to be identified, police say they believe that they had family in New Zealand and that it's possible their families aren't aware of their whereabouts. Police did not give any details on how the children died or whether there were any suspects in their murder, but said the family who found the bodies were not connected to their deaths. And still to come, an inflatable house designed for life on Mars. It's a public art project that's set to go on show in the British city of Bristol. We'll take you inside. And Sotheby's plans to auction one of the game jerseys Michael Jordan wore during his last NBA Finals. The jersey will go up for three to five million dollars. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Have you ever wondered what life on Mars would look like? A public art project is exploring ideas for a house on the red planet. It's an inflatable building that will soon be on display in the British city of Bristol. Let's take a look. A team of experts specialized in creating buildings for extreme environments helped design this inflatable house. It explores how people would potentially live on Mars. The team has to take transportation of materials to the red planet into consideration and what's already there. The key thing about when you're living on Mars is you need your buildings to be completely airtight because the atmosphere outside is essentially poisonous. Um, you then need to be able to keep out all the dangerous solar and cosmic radiation. So you need to have the outside uh, made of something which will keep all those dangerous rays out. So our house partially would be built underground in the amazing lava tubes which exist under the surface of Mars. The team settled on a design incorporating an inflatable structure above ground that will be filled with rubble or regolith, plus an underground level making use of lava tubes that occur in the crust of the red planet. So the idea is that it should be somewhere pleasant for someone to live, somewhere where we can use the scarce resources on Mars to, to really be able to, to not only exist, but to live a happy and productive life, whatever that person on Mars might be doing. The two-story, 570-square-feet house is powered by solar panels and designed to cope with average temperatures of negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. It has a hydroponic living room where occupants are surrounded by plants. This is a place for people to think about future living and how the scenario of life on Mars relates to their lives on Earth. Because on Mars you'd have to live within a really small resourceful community. You'd have to fix everything when it breaks. You'd have to really consider every aspect of your daily life. So it's a place for thinking about, um, yeah, about all of those questions. The project will open to the public at the end of August and run until the end of October. The Silver Ball Retro Arcade, a low-slung building along the boardwalk in the New Jersey beach town of Asbury Park, is not your typical museum. It's home to more than 150 fully functional pinball machines, some dating back from the 1950s. 
Visitors can go back in time and in some cases relive their childhood. On a breezy day in Asbury Park, pinging and popping sounds can be heard from the arcade. Growing up as a kid, right, me and my old man, he used to love all kinds of old stuff and this is just something that reminds me of him. You know, he's not around anymore, so I come here and I play and uh, I guess I pretty much uh, remember the past. You know, we used to play arcade games in, uh, over in Seaside. It's uh, physical, you can, you can touch it, you can feel very different than a video game. You, know, you can really experience it. The Pinball Museum opened in 2009. One of the founders was inspired by his autistic daughter. Since she loved playing pinball, he started collecting the machines and built a collection. His longtime friend and business partner also had a pinball machine collection. They combined their collections and Silverball Retro Arcade was born. It's almost like a record, how actual vinyl came back, comes back, and uh, and then you realize you love that crisp sound. It's the same with we kept that alive here with the games, and it's something different, or it's something from back in time that you remember doing when you were young. The senior vice president of the arcade says pinball makes you focus and be in the moment. She says it's a welcome breath of fresh air in an age of staring at phones and tablets. And at another hangout venue in New Jersey's famed Asbury Park Beach Town, dogs frolic in the sand, jump from plastic pool to pool, and lap from a sprinkler. At the same time, their owners enjoy drinks of their own outside of the Wonder Bar. It's yappy hour. Three days a week from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., owners let their pets off the leash and grab drinks from an outdoor bar. The canines dig in the sand, run on a deck, and cool off in pools, watched by doggy bouncers who step in if a pooch becomes aggressive. A $10 entrance fee supports animal welfare groups. What's your favorite part? Ah, uh, the pool. The pools, yeah. The pools, the socializing is great. He loves it. He's tired right now, but when we first got here, he was running around pool jumping. They have a bunch of pools here, so he's just running around in the pools. They come from the whole tri-state area, from Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania. First of all, it's a good socialization for their dogs, and then the people get to socialize. The Wonder Bar is across the street from Asbury Park's boardwalk. It's just one of the performance spaces in the Jersey Shore town known for rock singing greats like Bruce Springsteen and John Bon Jovi. But during yappy hour, it's the dog's turn to howl. Dry eyes are annoying and can stem from a variety of causes, but the good news is there are several ways to help them. Here's NTD's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Do your eyes get irritated and feel scratchy? The pain and discomfort can make even the most relaxing activity feel like a struggle. Itchy, scratchy, dry eyes can have several causes, from seasonal allergies to a dry environment. They could also be caused by dry eye syndrome, a problem caused by declining tear production. If eyes can't produce enough tears, they don't get the natural lubrication needed to stay moist. The result can be irritation, light sensitivity or blurry vision. Dry eye may even result in a sticky feeling or fewer tears while crying. Dry eye syndrome becomes more common with age and can also be caused by hormonal changes. For example, you could experience it during menopause. Certain medications such as antihistamines or decongestants can also be contributing factors. A few strategies and treatments may help to relieve the symptoms.
If you spend a lot of time in front of screens, try taking frequent breaks. The 20-20-20 rule may help. Every 20 minutes, focus on something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. You could also try minimizing screen time. Consider running a humidifier in your home. This can help reduce dryness and contribute to a more comfortable environment for your eyes. Several drops and ointments are also available. They can directly add lubrication or stimulate natural tear production. Although these products are not a cure, they have the potential to ease symptoms. The first step is visiting a doctor to get to the root of why your eyes are dry. If the doctor can determine why your eyes are dry, he or she will be able to set you up with the best treatment for your condition. In basketball news, a jersey from legend Michael Georgian is going up for auction. He wore the iconic jersey during the last championship run of his career, the 1998 NBA Finals. So here we have Michael Jordan's 1998 NBA Finals, the last dance jersey from game one. Um, when you think about you know, the arc of Michael Jordan's career and him coming to his last chance at a sixth NBA championship, um, the last dance really holds a special place uh, in the hearts of all Michael Jordan fans. And this is really one of the most significant artifacts for Michael Jordan to ever appear at auction. Bidding will be open from September 6th to 14th on Sotheby's website. ESPN's The Last Dance documentary series on Netflix has recently repopularized Jordan's career and the 1998 NBA Finals. Here's the backstory. Jordan's team, the Chicago Bulls, finished the regular season with 62 wins and 20 losses before winning the NBA title. It was their second three-part win in a span of eight years. In that title series, the Bulls beat the Utah Jazz in six games. Jordan scored the game-winning basket with just five seconds to go. He was named the finals' most valuable player. Jordan retired after the season before returning for two years with the Washington Wizards beginning in 2001. He's now a basketball Hall of Famer who owns the Charlotte Hornets. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.